This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Awesome. Well, it's good to see you guys. Uh, thanks for coming and hanging out. It's always so hard post-lunch, right? Um, the temptation is to find a bench or a bed or a comfortable person and uh, just lie down and go to sleep for ages. So uh, I do count sleepiness in seminars as a sign of demon possession, uh, which means if the person next to you starts getting a little bit too sleepy or starts making snoring noises, feel free to lay hands and vigorously cast out that demon of slumber, uh, and that will go really well. Uh, but we're going to have, uh, hopefully, a funnish conversation this afternoon just around engaging secular Sydney. What does it mean for realizing how the gospel is good news to our secular friends and neighbors, and how do we not only know that to be the case, but really in our conversations start to demonstrate that and help them come to see why Jesus really makes a difference in their life. And um, it would be an understatement to say that things are changing constantly changing around us and getting perspective on history and the history of ideas and culture and movements and what people believe and why. Uh, at the moment, it's changing at almost a head-spinning kind of pace. The rate of change is really quick, and I don't think many people are conscious of how it happens, but our beliefs are formed through a whole variety of ways, usually heavily from people that are around us, our social scenarios, the culture that we're taking in, the arts, the literature, the movies, the music that we listen to has profound influences on who we are. And and so we imbibe messages and beliefs without ever having to consciously even think about them. And so many of our friends and neighbors, if you ask them some of the biggest questions about life, they wouldn't really even know what their answers are. Uh, they could be unconscious beliefs that they have or ones that they've never had to put words to or articulate. And so a lot of what we'll be exploring today is actually um, doing some of the thinking on their behalf uh, and, and showing us how to get people to think by having better God conversations in a way that'll be useful. And so there's a, a kind of ton of notes that are just things that I've put together for you guys um, that hopefully will be helpful with some links and some ideas and some books and some resources. So um, we'll work through some of that. But I, I am of the firm belief uh, that the gospel itself has a power that this message about who God is and how he relates to human beings and the big story of scripture, kind of the focal point of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection from the dead, the preaching about his identity and his mission, that, that this story has an incredible power, not, not just as a vehicle through which God by his spirit is going to draw people to himself, wake them up to reality, but actually also in a profound way to help make sense of life. Uh, and if you're at the event that we did last night, there's one of the, my favorite lines in all of literature from one of C.S. Lewis's essays um, in God in the Dock is where he makes this admission about how uh, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. And his point was moving from atheism to Christianity, so much of human nature and the things that he understands about the world around us and our everyday experiences, it fits best. The Christian story makes sense of it all of a sudden. And in an amazing way for our secular friends and neighbors, we have the privilege of being able to help them wake up to reality. And I don't mean that pejoratively in any sense, but just to see life in all of its beauty and the colors of which God designed it. And 
it's really confronting as well. So there's a ton of barriers for seculars that we'll work through today, but maybe some of the most interesting stuff that's been done actually on uh, cities and secularism, when we're thinking about your context here particularly, has been done by philosophers and, and Christian mission mission workers, so guys that are practitioners in church planting and others. And um, so some big pieces of work like uh, Charles Taylor's A Secular Age, which is on a, a decade old now. He's a Canadian philosopher, a Catholic philosopher, but a phenomenal insight into the history of thought and what ideas are shaping people and where their intuitions and beliefs come from. Really helpful. Guys like James K.A. Smith would be another one. You can read shorter versions, things like uh, he's got three books, uh, kind of his own vision for how we're meant to be doing Christian ministry, but also has just written um, How Not to Be Secular, kind of a reduced version of, of, of Charles Taylor. Um, and then guys like Tim Keller, which uh, more on the practitioner level, how do we speak to people that are skeptical yet spiritual, have a deep sense that there's something more and yet deeply skeptical of religious institutions and traditional beliefs and these claims that kind of restrict them. And how do we speak well and kind of talk about our faith in the middle of those? And so much of what you'll find in the content today has been somewhat shaped by uh, a lot of these thinkers and, and what's really helpful. But in the middle of this, my encouragement would be um, to know what you believe. Uh, when it comes to the, most um, Christians that I talk to, they have a deep experience of God, and they know things about the Christian faith. But if you asked them to be able to share what it is that they believe uh, with the person next to them, it's not going to be pretty <laughs> or necessarily coherent, and certainly not for a secular, maybe helpful. And so one of the things I'm fond of doing in a safe space where it's not going to be confrontational for them or embarrassing is to get believers to try and share the story of the Bible in a couple of minutes. And normally what happens is you're two or three minutes in and they're stuck in the Garden of Eden with a talking snake and they don't know how to get out of it. Uh, and they're realizing that what they're saying is like a Bible thrown in a blender, swallowed and then spat out upon people. And it's just uh, a bunch of language, jargon, ideas, stories that most secular people will just be, what are you on about? How does this connect at all with who I am? You're speaking about fairyland here. And so one of the things that I always do close quarters training with, with the, the guys in our team is uh, getting them to be able to share what they believe, the Christian story, big story of the Bible, uh, as helpfully as they can for a secular person in two or three minutes and to practice it. So over a 12-month period of meeting weekly with, with guys that I'm investing into, I'll do it every single week, get them to share the big story. And then at the end of that two or three minutes, how do you think that went? What do you think was helpful? What do you think was really, uh, you could frame it better or it could be a sticking point or something you need to explain in a way that isn't using more theological and confusing language. Uh, and so at the beginning, they start off uh, almost theologically dyslexic. And then by the end of it, you get these amazing ability to be able to tell the Bible's big story. And it's not necessarily that you'll ever get the opportunity to do that with someone. You may, and I certainly do all the time, but it's more so that you in your own mind are really clear on who God is, what the gospel is, the good news of the message, and have started to think about both objections and how things will be heard from your secular friends, but more so uh, how the Christian story actually answers some of life's deepest questions. Um, if you jump in your notes, I think over to page three, um, um, you'll find uh, that there is uh, page four, actually, sorry. 
perfect. Um, there's a list of uh, things midway down that page on page four, which are what does it mean to form a worldview? What, what does a belief system look like? Um, some people will have really conscious belief systems. Other people will have um, unconscious belief systems. But think about it this way. Uh, everyone wears a set of lenses in front of their eyes through which they interpret the rest of the world. It helps you see, make sense of life, experience, and all of these things. In a worldview, you can figure out what someone believes by asking a series of questions. And I've given you seven headings there. Um, the first one is the idea of origins. Where do we come from? So what does your, your friend think about where humanity, the universe, everything comes from? Do they answer that question in scientific terms? Do they answer that question in religious terms? Are they sure or unsure? Are they certain or uncertain? And so origins, where do we come from? Uh, second one is identity. What does it mean to be human? This is one of the biggest questions being debated in various ways in our time, whether it's we're talking about transhumanism and the idea of uh, biochemical developments within uh, ability to gene splice, editing babies, uh, as well as then questions around sex and gender. And are these things fluid? Are they malleable? Are they meant to be more fixed? Is there an archetype that we should be moving towards? Uh, and then biological questions more from frameworks. Are we merely matter? Are we just material stuff that's following the code of the physical laws? Or is there something more to being human, an immaterial aspect, a godiness, an image of God? What is, how do we answer these sorts of questions on identity? I think they're huge questions. Um, there's things in there about meaning or purpose. Why are we here? What's the purpose for why human beings are here on the earth? Or for you particularly, what's your purpose and meaning in life? There's questions around morality. How do we decide what's right and wrong? Uh, there's questions around destiny. What happens to us when we die and be on the grave? We talked about that this morning. Uh, this question around the tension. What's wrong with the world? Because no one believes that everything's fine. Everyone believes that there's something wrong. And we have an incredibly justice-orientated culture for the most part at the moment. We're hyper-tuned to want to see justice. But what is the cause of evil? Uh, where does this problem stem and how do we deal with it is that idea of resolution. How do we fix things? And so when you're speaking to people in, in culture at the moment, what you realize is some of them will have clear answers to these questions, others unconscious. But here's the thing. You have to have a set of answers to those questions to be able to live in the world. You live as though a particular answer to that question is true. You default in the way that you choose to live, irrespective whether or not you've thought about it. And so answering these from a secular frame, I think you can only do well if you already know how to answer these from a Christian frame and are able to distinguish the difference. So the reason why I'm so passionate about people learning the story of the Bible, and I've given you an outline of how to do that in kind of five scenes on the first page, then with a little description under each one that it were you to share that specifically, it would be about a minute and a half all up. Uh, really specific, how do those questions, those worldview questions get answered by the Christian story because when you know I think it's really good news I think it's really good news for a confused culture I think it's really good news for a culture that seeks peace and well-being and justice and goodness I think it's good news for a culture that's realizing the fracturedness but doesn't know how they're meant to live or what it means to flourish under God's design and I also think it's good news predominantly because human beings are made for God and when we're separated from him nothing can fill that God-shaped vacuum, vacuum in the human heart, irrespective of how much we try and entertain ourselves to convince us otherwise. And so 
I'm fully convinced that the Christian story is really good news. And I think we need to start with being confident of that yourself, that the message of Jesus, of his death, his resurrection, of the forgiveness of our sin, our restoration to God, but not just a restoration to a relationship with God that sits out here as another aspect of life, but actually stepping back into the story of the Bible to understand the very reason for the existence of humans, to rejoin God and his purpose for us. It's like stepping into who you're always meant to be. And I think it's a profound invitation that we get to make as Christians to the secular story. But if you're anything uh, like me, as you speak to a lot of your friends, perhaps the most common objection in Australia at the moment, beyond questions around sexuality or hypocrisy and sex abuse in the church, um, the real barrier for most people is, I just don't see why God is necessary. So secular people, life's really good. Uh, we've got public health care system that'll look after me. I've got education. I've got a great job. I've got a good income, good clothes. I'm not praying for my daily bread, worried where a meal's going to come. Like it, I'm in a really good space in life. And so the most common kind of spiritual condition, I would say, among seculars is I'm happy without God. I'm good without God. Why do I need this religious stuff? And to understand here how to build good conversations around this is to know what does the secular story say to those seven key worldview questions and where is it creating a dissonance between the heart and the mind now what i mean by this is if secularism is true and what i mean by that is it's a privatization of belief and only that which is non-religious is talked about in the public sphere which almost always becomes a vacuum of ideas then because everything we believe is value laden and in the vacuum of ideas non-supernatural uh, views get pr uh, prioritized in the public space and so people kind of default towards atheism as being the new normal that would be uh, i would say the the kind of spiritual state of things here um if atheism is true <laughs> How does the atheist answer those set of questions that we were talking about before? So the atheist will give a scientific explanation about origins. It's a little bit incomplete because we don't understand the origins of matter and the universe in the first place or the or, you know, the development of biological life on Earth. We, we, it's incomplete, but at least there's something, right? It's a scientific explanation, just a material one. But as soon as you come to the question of identity then, what does atheism have to say to what does it mean to be human? And if it is only a material explanation, then it says almost very little. At least nothing of significant value as to what it means to be human. There's no innate value, equality, dignity, and worth in being human. You're just one form of cosmic stardust. There's no greater value to you than, than any other form. And, and however you want to define personhood, irrespective of God, from a philosophical point of view, you're actually always cutting out real people in the middle of that. So they'll say, what does it mean to be human? Well, it's consciousness. You know, we're self-aware. What about a person in a coma or a person who's got a particular condition where they're, they're out for a moment? Or it will be a, a person who's uh, in a situation of being able to contribute meaningfully to society. Or what happens to someone who becomes disabled and then becomes a, a physical or economic drain? Or it will be someone uh, who uh, isn't dependent upon another human being for their existence? <laughs> My kids can't live three days, you know, without us. They're completely dependent on it. And, and so all of a sudden, as soon as you try and draw the line anywhere else than being made in the image of God as the source for human value and dignity and identity, 
that can be robbed in an instant. And so I think there's a deep anxiety at the heart of a secular world because everything that we're pursuing to give us meaning and significance and identity is something that could be changed or be left unfulfilled. Whereas within Christianity, it's not a discovered identity. It's not a discovered meaning. It's something that's revealed from God. It's fixed. It's certain. It's sure. Uh, and there's real hope in the middle of that. I think when it comes to questions around purpose, what do we exist for on secularism? Well, the scientific answer is reproduction. And the best you can do in terms of a created meaning for yourself is to try and find happiness. Uh, most people would be trying to search for significance or happiness in uh, one form or another. And in Christian thinking, we, we look at uh, idols trying to find your significance outside of God. But that's all that's left if you get rid of God. And so for the most part, purpose is something everyone's seeking. No one really knows what it is. You chase other people that kind of look happy, but what they present on the front face on Instagram is nothing like what's really going on in the darkest moments of their lives. And so I, I, you start thinking through all of what this means. And the way I've come to describe secularism, secular culture, is it's reduction. From Christianity, uh, mystical infused world that's pregnant with meaning because of the existence of God to a two-dimensional existence that's purely material and physical and where people are treated either as contributors or consumers and that's the major currency of how our culture kind of deals with people and so um, think about it this way uh, how would the secular story describe what love is right you grow up, you read some of Shakespeare's plays, Romeo and Juliet, from probably one of the best in terms of an interaction of star-crossed lovers. Um, or you read 1 Corinthians 13 and just this incredible little sermonette on love that the Apostle Paul gives. Love is patient, is love is kind, it is not um, rude, it is not proud, it is not self-seeking. And, and we resonate with this. <laughs> There's something why the romance stories in Hollywood have been so darn successful. Um, or the stories of self-sacrificial love has shaped so much of what we see to be virtuous in culture. But on secularism, what is love? If we're purely material creatures and everything that happens is just ones and zeros, chemically speaking, in our brains then love is neither something you choose nor is it something that is anything more than a biochemical reaction. It's not a supreme virtue. It's just a reaction that you have no control over. And so your feelings for a person at a particular time, I don't know why that's warming to the other person because it's not in any way an actual appreciation of something objective about them. It's just how you're wired, biologically speaking, to respond to their presence. And you start thinking that about love. And then what would be true of free will or consciousness, which guys like Sam Harris and uh, Daniel Dennett, new, new atheist folk, they deny that they're real things. They say we, we tend to experience them. We have the perception that we're free and choose and that we're conscious and are the drivers of our own existence. But in reality, we're the passengers. None of that's real. Our brain uh, systems, the various cognitive systems just combine. It's all uh, subconscious what happens and you only become aware of it in the aftermath. Well, if that's true, what does that mean? Well, nothing I do is praiseworthy because I didn't choose to do it. There's nothing in me that made it worthy, but also nothing's blameworthy either. If someone does something like rape you or molest you or abuse you or uh, they had no choice not to do that, it's not an active decision that they've made. And so on atheism, with this reduction, all of a sudden our lives make no sense. 
And it's ways here that you realize um, Francis Schaeffer was a Christian thinker of the previous century. He wrote a number of brilliant books, but one of his famous lines was, even if someone doesn't believe in God, they still have to live in the world God has made. Which means everyone still lives as though God is real, but no one necessarily knows or can draw the lines between why that is. And many people are happy to identify and get rid of God and identify them as as atheists without really understanding the implications of what that means for their worldview. And so you can put yourself in the shoes of two different people, one a believer in God who understands their worldview, another a secular person who understands their worldview, and someone comes to you who's suicidal in their thinking and says, what should I do? I don't think my life's worth living. Well, what do you have to say to that person about their value and dignity or the worth of their life, given the strata of your worldview? What does your perspective on life really speak into that scenario about what you think that person is and whether their life has dignity in and of itself and whether there's hope for transformation beyond just medicine or cognitive repair therapy? And and I, I really do start to see a stark difference between the beauty and explanatory power and hope of the Christian story versus the implications or reductionism of, of where I, I tend to think secularism leads. And so one of the ways I would encourage us to think about engaging with our secular friends would be, um, rather than saying, here's 52 arguments for the existence of God, is to start having conversations about love and about their hopes, the things that are in them innately because they're made in God's image and they can't help but feel and think and act and want that way, and then start to talk about, well, how do you make sense of that? given that you don't really believe in God? Where do you think that comes from? Or what does that point towards? Because I think the most beautiful way that God's given to reveal himself is actually the human person, that we're made in his image. And so much within us is like a GPS pointing right back to our creator. And so having useful conversations about things that people all experience and want and love, but just digging a little bit deeper behind that conversation to see how we do that well. Uh, And what I'd love to be able to have a good conversation about today, and I think it's on page, uh, again, four of your notes there at the top, is um, I'm passionate about recapturing the art of spiritual conversation. (laughs) Because one of the, I think it's a lost spiritual discipline I think our information age hasn't been helpful at learning to ask really good questions. Um, And I think something about the mediums that we use, social media and stuff, it's stopped our ability to be present in a conversation really well and to keep going deeper, to get to deeper levels of communication. And so what I've been thinking about lately in when you look at the kind of gospel stories is how much Jesus uses really good questions. Uh, rather than someone asking him a question, good teacher, what must I be, do to have eternal life? And you're like, well, I'm going to die in your place for your sin, and then I'll rise again to prove that that's the case. And all you need to do is have faith in me, and uh, salvation is by faith, uh, f- by, by grace through faith in Christ alone, and that's it. Just sit down with me, pray the sinner's prayer, and we're done. Um, that's not what Jesus says in any of those sorts of scenarios. Instead, he asks these really annoying questions with, uh, why do you call me good? 
Uh, and so what you see in the pattern of the New Testament, Jesus uh, cheats in a big way because so often when he's speaking to someone, it'll say, and Jesus knowing their hearts said. Like, that's unfair, Jesus. He's like tapping into the Holy Spirit's power in a way that's just not fair. Uh, but for the most part, he actually models to us how to get to know the person behind the questions as well. Because we're never sent out there just to give rote answers to people's questions or the big barriers of our culture. We're there to go and interact with real people whom God loves and through whom Jesus died for. And so in the middle of this, Jesus, the pattern of his ministry is to constantly ask questions. If you read the four Gospels, he asks 307 of them. In fact, in 20 different situations where he's asked point blank Jesus and then a question rather than giving an answer he only gives an answer on four occasions the other 21 times he asks a question in response because to answer their question in the way that they wanted him to is actually to reduce uh, that conversation to simply question answer and it shuts there's no way to go from there so by Jesus asking questions questions do a, a bunch of things um, one it makes people actually think what they believe believe about this topic, this area. And so in Jesus asking a question, it'll make people actually consider, what do I believe to some of these big life questions? Have I really thought about it? Do I know? Uh, second thing it does is it gets to the heart of an issue. Questions have a way of penetrating where people are coming from in a way that answers don't. Because you keep talking and you're waiting for them to kind of nod or agree. Whereas in a question, you can cut right to the core of an issue. And so um, with this one, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, why do you call me good? Now, why did Jesus give this response? It's kind of, it feels like a red herring, right? But when you think about that situation, Jesus is asking the guy, none is good but God alone. So if you're calling me good, are you calling me God? And if you are calling me God, are you willing to, what, to listen to what I have to say? But if you're calling me good just to butter me up, what's your real motive in coming here? <laughs> do you really want to know the answer? And so Jesus here in confronting whether or not this man is recognizing his identity is actually asking a question of, will you receive my authority? Because my answer to your question, it's hard. It's not easy to receive. And so I think in many respects, you realize Jesus cuts to the heart of what's going on by asking a good question. And the other thing that questions do is they actually open up conversation rather than closing it down, right? Um, when I'm doing Q&A, if I have a big block of time, I, I really like getting into interactions with people. And I'll actually ask questions like, uh, or, or if they come back, and I say, well, what do you think about that? And where do you get your information? And what have been reasons that have kind of convinced you that that's true? And allow people to start digging through there. Um, but you don't learn to ask good questions and become a good conversationalist overnight. <laughs> um, and so my encouragement would be to think about helpful questions for God conversations. On page five, I've given you a list of about 30 questions that I use in different situations. Uh, so whether to start spiritual God conversations, whether to be able to dig into a person's beliefs, to be able to explore their barriers to Christianity, non-confrontational for the most part questions that I use regularly to go from having a surface level conversation about where a person's at to really getting down deeper and being able to diagnose what's your real barrier to believing in God and trusting in Jesus. Because often what you'll find... The presenting questions are not the real barriers. They're the smokescreen to distract you and to keep you at arm's length. Well, the real questions are usually experiences, unmet prayers, um, maybe confusing uh, situations that they've had in life that for them, they just can't make sense of what they perceive to be the Christian God or they've got a really 
caricatured or stereotyped view of God. And so my biggest encouragement to you if you want to learn how to engage with secular people is to become a better conversationalist and to do that by learning to listen before speaking uh, and to ask really, really good questions. Because the first step to properly applying any cure, effectively engaging with someone, is actually to diagnose where they're coming from. If you went to the doctor and you never really told them any of your symptoms and they just prescribed you some kind of medicine, you'd be pretty suspicious. <laughs> how do you know that's really where what I need right now? And what I would say is the Christian story is good news for two kinds of reasons. It's good news to everyone objectively because it says something that's true of all people, that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, that everyone needs the forgiveness of sins and to be restored back to God. But there's also a very specific way, that very individual way that the gospel is good news for an individual, for a person that you're speaking to. Um, so I've got a few friends that are same-sex attracted um, who have become Christians actually while they've had long-term boyfriends. Uh, why is the gospel good news for my same-sex attracted friend? Yes, it's good news because we're all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we need, But what is particularly good news to that person, the promise of following Jesus? And I don't think we wrestle enough with thinking that through. <laughs> Um, when we're asking one of our same-sex attracted friends to say no to what the secular story says is the ultimate thing to have, intimacy, romance, sex, relationship, one other person that will meet all your desires, that's kind of the epitome of what's going to bring you happiness, fulfillment, contentment in life. If we're asking them to say no to that kind of romantic relationship, to come and follow Jesus then what's good news to them about that? Uh, one guy that I know that's walked away from Jesus, he just said, that's death to me. <laughs> the only goodness is if I can pursue this. What you're offering just seems like death to me because in his mind, all I'm offering him is a life of loneliness and the promise of eternal life after he dies. But that's not the promise of the gospel. And when Jesus, his disciples, uh, he challenges the people that are following him. And he says, you basically have to give up everything. Be willing to put me first if you're going to come and follow me. And they said, but Jesus, we've given up mothers, brothers, land, sisters, children to come and follow you. And, and Jesus says, no one who gives up these things will fail to receive in this life 100 times that which they gave up. And then in the life to come, reap eternal life. And he said, the promise that you have of coming to God, of the spiritual family of God's people, the church, is an intimacy and a web of relationships that will bring as much, if not more, fulfillment in that sphere itself. Intimacy, truly knowing people, being truly loved for who you are, than you'll ever find in the arms of another person in a romantic relationship. Now, here's my challenge to you. Do you believe that? And does the church really reflect that right now? Or, as we were discussing before, do we, in many respects, still buy into the secular story and still want the ideal Australian-slash-American dream of having a wife and kids and a picket fence and then saying that that's the ultimate form of Christian discipleship? And then, if you're single, well, we'll pray for you. Maybe one day you'll enter this bastion of Christian fulfillment called marriage. Uh, and I think marriage is an incredible gift from God. And I think singleness is an incredible gift from God. And I think we need to do better as the church at being the kind of community that isn't just everyone who's always the same 
skin color, place in life, situation, all hang out and leave everyone else to themselves. I actually think we need to become the kind of community that reflects the diversity of God's kingdom and the people that are going to populate the new creation. And if we learn to become that, and if what we offer people is an experience of the kingdom of God like that, then that becomes something where they can say, yes, Jesus is supremely worthy. And the thing that he invites me into isn't a life of loneliness. It's a life of being known by God and then also loved by God's people then that becomes something that can be really attractive. And so my, my thinking would be always know why the gospel is good news for everyone, irrespective of who they are and what they're chasing in life. But also think through as you ask good questions and have conversations, particularly with seculars, why is this gospel good news to them, particularly given what they're pursuing as the source of meaning and joy? How is Jesus and what he promises amongst his people better than the idols that they're pursuing? And that's, I think, one of the most amazing things we can draw them into is not the false promise that life's going to be easy following Jesus because it ends in self-sacrifice and giving yourself, it's an incredibly difficult life. You will have trouble, but it's a life of profound joy and promise of walking with God and God's people in the midst of that, where I just don't think we know how to speak about what that looks like well, because perhaps we live the belief we have the cognitive belief but we still follow the secular story and chase after those things rather than actually jumping in boots and all into the christian mission and realizing what the community of god can look like when we love each other and love the lord first it's just an an amazing gift and so these are some of the things i've really been wrestling through when it comes to seculars what is it that makes the gospel good news to them because it's not the daily bread of providing for physical needs we've got life awesome here but what are the deep hungers that because the image of God is on us can never be satisfied by the things of this world. C.S. Lewis calls it the argument from desire. If I find within myself desires which nothing in this world can fulfill, perhaps it's evidence that I was made for another world. And finding, tuning in to those deep intuitions that are within the human heart because of being made into the image of God, I, I've been finding them to be the most fruitful ways of, of connecting. Um, but in another 10 minutes, and then we'll jump to questions, I just want to give a, a, a real primer on public Christianity. Uh, and one of the best passages in the Bible actually comes in, in 1 Peter 3 on this. So if you've got a Bible there, turn, turn with me to it. 1 Peter chapter 3. And in here, uh, 1 Peter is an awesome parallel, maybe to something like the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. In in the book of Daniel, it's Jewish exiles in the city of Babylon. Now in the book of Peter, it uses this language of exiles, of aliens, citizens of the kingdom of God in a place that we're meant to contribute, seek the peace and prosperity of the city, love the city, serve the city, preach the gospel in the city. But our primary identity, our citizenship is in God's kingdom. And so we're aliens. This world in its current form, this world in opposition to God, God is fractured. It's not our home. This is not the ultimate destination of what our hearts are attached to. And so he uses this language of feeling like we're aliens, we're exiles in amidst a different culture that doesn't believe the same, is sometimes a little bit hostile to what we believe, but uh, much more in, in 1 Peter than what we face. We face more antipathy and, and apathy than, uh, than, than the kind of hostility that they did. But I want to read with you from uh, verse 13 in chapter 3 onwards, and this is a phenomenal primer in public Christianity. Um, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good but even if you should suffer for doing what is right you are blessed do not fear their threats do not be frightened but in your hearts revere christ as lord 
Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Um, this passage overall um, just has a really profound way of describing the role of being a Christian in secular culture. Uh, and for the most part, it, it recognizes that our first port of call in engaging with a secular culture is first to be worshippers of God. I love that before it says, give an answer, it says, in your heart set apart Christ the Lord as holy. You revere Christ as Lord. Depending on your translation, it phrases that in different ways, but the key theme is center everything around Jesus. Live a life of worship. Because when we are chasing after God and his kingdom, when we love God with our whole being, something about our witness actually begins in our worship. People sense, whether it's authentic or whether you're just doing this under some false sense of duty, they see joy and it's infectious. If we're meant to reflect who God is, that actually comes from standing in the presence of God. Think Moses up on Mount Sinai coming down and just radiating the glory of God. And this is where Christians are invited to come daily into the presence of God in their prayer and their worship life to set apart Christ as Lord and allow that to really shape kind of the beginnings of their witness. It also says in here, uh, don't get a bullhorn and go out on the street corner and start preaching to people about how without Jesus they're going to hell. In fact, it encourages you to live a questionable life. And I don't mean that in the sense that most people would think from Christian conduct, but in in 1 Peter 3.15 there, he says, always be prepared to give an answer. And then he says, to who? To anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And what this is presupposing is that something about the way that you're living is actually provoking questions in secular people. That they're curious about why you prioritize things different. They're curious about why you give things. They're curious about why you paid for their lunch. They're curious about why you invest so much time volunteering to help other They're curious something about your life is provoking questions. Uh, I remember once being uh, up involved in the Gold Coast with a ministry called Red Frogs. It's helping out over schoolies time when students are graduating. And, and I was leading a team and I was discussing uh, what we do with a uh, Muslim security guard and he asked me the question he was doing Quranic studies he wanted to do theology and become an imam and he said one thing I've just never understood about Christians why would you give away 10% of your income to the church He's like, that's your money. Why would you do that? And he had all kinds of thoughts around why you have to tithe and 10% and all these things, irrespective of that. And it was just for him a confusing point. Why not invest it into a down payment for a house so that you can pay less interest over it? Like, there's so many other things you could do with that for yourself. Why would you give it away? And this just became one of those moments. It's just what we do. Christians believe so much in the generosity and the goodness of God that we want to contribute to getting the gospel go forward so that others can hear about what God has done as well as to serving the needs of the poor. And yes, the government takes 40% of what I earn to be able to do that as well, but we think we do it better as the people of God. And so we're involved in mercy wherever we can be. Uh, One element of a questionable life, but I'm sure that everyone here has their own ways in which compared to your secular secular friends, following Jesus means you make different choices that you live for different kingdoms. And so there should be ways in which our lives are distinguishable from the rest of our friends around us, not because we're going out of our way to look holy, 
But just by following Jesus, our priorities are different, and people start to provoke questions, to live questionable lives. Uh, the third thing he says in here about public Christianity is to actually be prepared to give an answer. Uh, I was at a conference at uh, a big charismatic church last week, and uh, in an interview they said, how do we prepare to be able to answer people's questions? And I just said, prepare. Like, when you think about it, everyone knows what the questions are, right? There's seven or ten super common questions that people will have, questions around uh, sex and gender, questions around marriage, questions around hypocrisy, questions around religious violence and the history and damage of, of, of institutional Christianity, questions around science and faith and miracles, questions around uh, the exclusivity of the Christian faith and other religions, questions around suffering. Like, there's probably seven or ten questions. They're always the same. They change a little bit culturally, but for the most part, if you had just one thing that's helpful to say an answer, not a William Lane Craig or Ravi Zacharias or professorial academic answer, but just one thing that when someone raises that topic, you're like, look, I think this is helpful to bring Jesus into the conversation, to point them back to the teaching and example of Jesus, how Jesus makes a difference in this. Just actually think about it and prepare. Um, a, a little while ago, my wife uh, was going for an interview. She had, they had to re-interview for their jobs, for their work, big restructure, but she was actually going for a different position. And so um, she got given the interview questions before the interview. And awesome, right? And now, did she say, oh, yeah, I know what the questions are, so when I get in there, I'm just going to wing it? Well, that's not really a, you know, there's one job and 15 applicants. Or if you get this one opportunity to give an answer to this question, it's not something you should be really be, be winging. And so we spent a bunch of nights <laughs> in the lead up to her interview going over these questions and allowing her to come up with something that she thought was, was helpful so that in the spot, she's not going to do it by rote, but she'll have thought about it at least and know a couple of things that are useful in that kind of a situation. And it, it, it baffles me that we know all of the major topics and that we don't at least have something helpful to be able to, not super, but something. You can give something. And so my encouragement would be to go home from here, think about those seven, ten questions, put them in your phone, and just say, what's one thing I could say that would be helpful? Just think about it for a little bit. Maybe Google it to look at some of the websites on the back page that I put there or pick up some of the books that have good answers to those questions or the podcast if you're a listener and not a reader. I gave you multiple options for the hearing and visual and tactile kind of people amongst you. So, um, But just have a think through some of those because I don't think we can engage a secular culture with all of its doubts and objections without being able to give helpful answers to some of these key objections. Apologetics now is part of evangelism. You, you can't really be divorced from it. Preach the gospel and don't just tell them why it's good news in the preaching of the gospel, but also give them reasons why they can believe that this is true news, not just some kind of fanciful hope. And that's what God will grab and use to draw people to himself so that they can worship him in heart and mind, not just with the two of those being at war with each other. And so uh, I think there's a, a ton of really helpful things. And just expect that you'll be misunderstood. Um, Christianity has been caricatured by the Simpsons in South Park for long enough. It's been ripped apart by new atheists for long enough. Um, it's been maybe mis- uh, or not misrepresented or unhelpfully represented amongst 
Christian institutions and a lot of schooling networks for a long time so that many people think they know what Christianity is about, but don't. They think they know what God's like, but, but don't. Um, just expect that you'll be misunderstood. Don't become offended. Don't repay evil with evil or get under the collar, but just gently, winsomely, with graciousness and respect, just keep responding and sharing about the God that you know. And I think in here, um, uh, I talk about speaking Christian truth with a Christian accent. Um, if you become like those internet forums, Actually, you're not going to win people in that way because what you win them with, the method of who Jesus is, that's actually the message. Um, the reason we're in so much trouble, Christianity in Australia, has nothing to do with the quality of our message, and it's got everything to do with the quality of the messengers. Um, my mentor, Ravi, he says, if the devil can't attack the message, he'll try and destroy the messenger. And that in itself will take away the credibility of the message. And so in Australia, most people's perceptions of Christians is that they're selfish or foolish or morally suspicious to one degree or another, or you're bigoted or hateful and... Uh, I think in Christianity we desperately need to recapture the idea that the messenger is the message. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, he speaks to the church and says, uh, all these other super false apostles, they have these written letters of recommendation from churches about their credentials. But Paul said, actually, you're my letter. The proof that I'm called of Jesus, the proof of the gospel is actually in you as a community who are being changed to become more and more like Jesus day by day. Um, Christianity is... We've got to dissolve the devoid, the void, or divide. Sorry, between the messenger and the message. Um, Jesus-focused, loving, sacrificial, holy lives. That it's joyful and it's possible under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And that we're not perfect people morally looking down our noses on other people. We're broken people being put back together by Jesus, and we're so thankful for it. And I, I think if we can recapture <laughs> this um, element of having our lives look like Jesus, people start wanting what we have. What is it about Jesus' moral genius that made him so scorching on sin and yet so magnetic to sinners? It's this profound love and grace and concern married together with a solid conviction that stepping outside of God's design is going to bring harm and suffering, but it's the promise that he can actually do something about it. And so uh, those things in public Christianity, I think we need, we need to work on. And I'll leave you just with this. Um, I don't think the church scattered is most effective in, a, in our current age. So we talk in Christian theology about the church gathered and the church scattered. Sunday mornings, our community groups, church gathered. Uh, Monday mornings, church scattered. Everyone off in their own individual life callings around there. And I think we gather together to learn, grow, worship God publicly, and then be sent out on mission. I completely agree with that. But I think because of the challenges that Christianity is facing, because none of us are the world's best witnesses, none of us have all the answers, none of us are the most, there are speakers. I, I think the best thing that we have going for us is the church. The church is both the greatest apologetic and problem to the gospel. When we follow Jesus, it's the greatest apologetic. Jesus himself said that they will know that you're my disciples if you have this love one for another. And so my encouragement is to think about ways that given people's objections and their need for community and to see the gospel lived, how is it that you can invite people into 
see the church in one way or another. It could be events like last night. It could be your gospel communities. It could be starting something at work with some other colleagues. It could be something, but a way that you can gather together with other Christians and do mission together. Even Jesus found his followers in pairs so that there was something of the dynamism, the relationship that's on display as they go out to declare the gospel. I think there's just an incredible wisdom in thinking through how can you get together with other Christians and do evangelism together. And so this year, uh, even amongst my life group uh, at home, we lead a young adults life group, uh, we have decided that once a month on a Friday night, we're doing a table talk night. And it's literally great food, open table at our house that they can bring friends and colleagues and stuff along to. And it's just meant to be a dinner party and we'll have spiritual conversation that's mostly led by people's questions. You can just come ask your questions, super non-confrontational, but it's just another way to create opportunities for evangelism to be happening in community and there's something about uh, we've had three people come to faith in the last couple of years as part of our life group and there's something about them coming in curious with questions because of their friend coming and seeing community feeling loved and then having that space to raise their doubts and questions and objections whilst being exposed to the message of Jesus that I just think is really really kind of useful in our secular age it's an embodied message not just a disembodied pronouncement and I think In many respects, that's the gift of the incarnation. God could have sent a message from afar, but he didn't. He sent a person so that we can see what God is like. And through us as followers of Jesus, pointing to the example of Jesus, we get to show people what God is like. So there's a ton of thoughts I've been thinking on, wrestling with, and stuff about engaging seculars, but you'll have more questions, uh, mainly because you're thinking about real people and not just abstract culture. You're thinking about faces, names, questions, objections, apathies. And so um, while we spend some time in questions, probably the best thing to do would be um, to actually have a quick chat for two minutes with the person next to you so you can say, if you could ask God, if you could learn from Jesus one thing to be more helpful, what would your questions be in and around this area of actually engaging your secular friends and family? Uh, So talk about that together, clarify the questions, and then we'll do a little bit of Q&A in two minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the great, it's a great question. It's more about engaging in the public sphere and how uh, do we share with our friends whose reactions or reasons why they maybe are concerned about what we think isn't because of the way that we project it in, in the way, but in the way that other Christians, particularly public Christians, um, might want to push things using more of a power and political voice rather than an individual pastor or one. Uh, and I think that's a very, very key question. Um, and it, it does grieve me, uh, I think, the way that many things get addressed publicly and and everything is a policy issue when it comes down to it Uh, we do think our beliefs shape public life and we 
need to be able to have those public conversations, but I get very nervous um, when anyone claims both to represent the entirety of Christianity, as though they are the Christian voice on this, but I also get really nervous um, in the, the means and the methods and whether there's a real compassion at the core of what it is that people are saying. And one of the things you'll notice about the, the genius of Jesus is uh, he has a political voice, but for the most part, his political voice is actually confronting what he perceives to be injustices, not protecting his own particular rights. And I think Christians are caught up in this difficult uh, relationship, publicly speaking, in wanting to advocate for a way of life that we think is in line with God's good design and therefore will lead to the good of all people, uh, and then not pushing our particular theological persuasion upon someone else who disagrees with that in a democratic society. And particularly when you read the gospel stories in the way that Jesus encourages us is not to see power as an answer but actually to try and work through the heart of people. And so for me in, in this situation, my, my perspective would certainly be more, I think, along the lines that you're probably talking about, trying to have better ground-level pastoral conversations about key issues rather than just promote a public disconnected voice that seems to not care about people on the ground. And I think we need to just do some good thinking about political philosophy and how we engage there. Um, but for the most part, how do you deal, though, with your friends that are put off because of the Christian voices that they've heard? Um, and I think... Uh, uh, it's easy um, to just point them to Jesus. If I could put this in, I don't, I don't know if that sounded really trite, but um, most of the things that people look at and they would look, uh, be concerned with the behaviors, I don't think they would look at Jesus and be concerned with those same behaviors. So when someone says, uh, I can't believe in Christianity because look at what priests have done to kids over generations in God's name, and it is evil, uh, and I think we should point at that and be mournful and agree that it's evil. Um, but Jesus would be as quick to condemn those actions and would call that out. And in fact, Jesus' greatest words of warning about the danger of judgment actually came to religious leaders that weren't living what they were professing to live. And so Jesus was incredibly hard on those who carry responsibility and wield it for their own ends. And so um, in those questions, whenever anyone says to me, there's hypocrisy or I don't agree with this, I'm like, I actually think if you look at Jesus, he would agree with you in some of these ways. Uh, and so mostly when it's religious hypocrisy or the history of Christianity or, or even these sorts of questions, maybe more outspoken Christians that have a particular method in how they want to share the message and think it's going to be conducive to gospel stuff is actually say, um, I, I can see why they think that and that's our d democratic culture kind of playing in. But I'm not sure if you reflect, actually go to look at the life of Jesus. That's what he modeled. And, and the good news, I guess, of the Christian story is none of anyone who professes to follow him is going to follow it perfect. And the hope isn't that we necessarily do that. It's the very reason why we need the gospel to exist in the first place, so that we can find forgiveness. And so I, uh, it's hard. And I would probably say um, if you're in a group scenario, it, it'll never happen. Um, it's in one-on-one -on -one conversations with people where they don't feel like they have to uh, articulate a particular view in front of everyone else to be part of the in-crowd that you can get more meaningfully deep about that stuff so yeah i'd try and have a conversation around well how did jesus interact with hot button issues of his own time but more so look at the way that he ministered to actual people um on all sides of those spectrums yeah yeah any other thoughts yeah 
Yeah. I think that's a great question. I think it's a great question. So the question was, um, how do you know when it's a good time to be increasing or building deeper friendships? Uh, how, when it's, are you influencing them or are they more influencing you? How do you make wise decisions around there? And, and I'd probably call on the wisdom of the people that are around you, the other believers that you know, to help make those decisions in each particular case. I think New Testament gives some really interesting warnings, like 1 Corinthians 15, 33, do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good character. And there are a lot of believers who in a desire to, follow Jesus and to go and hang out with the drunkards and sinners and whatever that translates into today, teenage life, I don't know, um, is, uh, well, I'm just going to go and I'm going to do the things that they're doing because that's where Jesus wants me to be, not realizing how profoundly they're being influenced and affected in that way and it's shaping them really negatively. Um, but the, the opposite is also true. Christianity is not a retreatist movement. It's not a bunker down fundamentalist movement that's put up the walls and protect ourselves and little conclaves, it's meant to be a deeply uh, embedded into the broader culture, influencing every sphere of society and outworking its way out. And so I don't think there's an easier way to put it other than um, to learn maybe through having good conversations with others, your limits. Um, I think you actually use the language perfectly. When you go uh, to the Hive Bar last night and you're hanging out with some friends downstairs rather than upstairs with the Christian crew, um, do you feel like in that situation it's having a really negative impact on your love for Jesus and your spiritual sensitivity and are you able to be like him in that space and if you feel that you, there's no way you can be like Jesus in that space then it's maybe just not the right space to be and if there are some friendships that are either in dependency or negativity or uh, just becoming crippling it may be necessary to create some boundaries in your life not to cut people off and throw them to the wolves but to find out how is it that I build myself up and I think most of the language is realizing um what you're talking about particular people is actually just true of culture broadly. It is impossible to live today without being discipled in the secular story. Everything you watch, everything you listen to, every activity <clears throat> that you engage in, much of it follows a particular materialist, consumerist view of the world and of human happiness and nature. And so you're being discipled every hour of every day. And the biggest question to ask is, how am I letting Jesus form what I see as valuable, how I live, my decision-making, uh, how I go about relating with people, what I, how, how I look at them, what do I see when I see my friends, um, how I draw out from them encouragement, how I use my words to build them up rather than tear them down, how I hold my tongue so I'm not contributing to a culture that's just gossiping and sharing information that isn't really helping anyone. And so I think uh, actually focusing not so much on how do I just make the decisions about that, but how do I actually grow into being a follower of Jesus? We need to have... Uh, just be really committed to thinking about that. How am I reviewing and growing as a follower of Jesus every single day so that I'm able to influence these sorts of environments? Because I think most Christians, you can come to church your entire life and learn to make relatively decent moral decisions, but yet not have much of an influence upon people because, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 
Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And uh, yeah, I think being yeah. Yeah, I think um, yeah, we're going to be treated as weird in that way because we, we we follow a different master. We 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 march to the beat of a different drummer. Like if Jesus is our master and we trust His promises and we trust the pattern of life that He's laid down, people are going to think that we're different and weird. And I mean, Jesus said, "Expect it. You, they will oppose. They will make fun." Yeah. I do think we pay a high price. Sorry, I do think we should pay a high price to follow Jesus. Uh, probably more than we do. I think maybe we're too much cultural chameleons. I think because we're inspired by the creator God, we should be the best creators of culture in the world. Uh, we shouldn't pull out of any of those endeavors. But I do think uh, it does also mean that we pay a high cost in terms of other people's perspectives on, on who we are and statements. He's worth it. Yeah. Yeah, I think our. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think I think there's there's a couple of ways to do that, which we were talking about before. Is say, um, if what I believe is true, then it may be fun, but it's not good. So it may be fun for the moment, but it's not lasting satisfaction. It may bring me a moment's entertainment or distraction or something like that, but it's not what I'm made for. And so I, I think the biggest question is, do you actually believe that what Jesus invites us into is good news? And the promise isn't don't have sex until you're married, and he promises that you will. The thing is, sex is a gift, but it's a gift for within marriage. And, before, and there's no promise that you will get married. There's no promise that Jesus will give you this best life now kind of vision of things. The promise is come and follow me and you'll live with me and you'll follow my pattern, my design. You'll know God, you'll live in Christian community, that you'll have know the purpose and reason for your existence and that this life right now, this is not all that's to live for. We, we live here, the best way I can describe it is this life is the engagement period, right? Um, for anyone that's that's been engaged, in, uh, well, engagement periods can often be really, really difficult because you want to be closer in a relationship than what technically you're allowed to be yet, both physically, emotionally, spiritually, um, but you're not yet too, uh, you're not yet united in that way. You still live in different places, you still have times apart, and it's, it's a weird period of time for a lot of people, that whole navigating uh, engagement. But if the Bible story is true, then that's the exact period of time that we're in. Um, Jesus is betrothed to the church. He's made a promise that one day we're never going to be separated again, that we're going to be close and there'll be an intimacy with God. Um, that's not here. It's not right now. You can know God. You can experience God. But the kind of intimacy of the new creation where God now dwells on earth with us, that the Lord and his lamb is the temple and the sun and the source of light, uh, what we have there is far better than what we have here. And so I, I, this is awesome analogy by um, Francis Chan where he just gets this ridiculously long rope and it kind of continues to go off stage so you don't even see the end of it. And then he just has the, the tip that he's got dipped in red paint. And he said, this is your life here on earth. The rest of it is eternity. It makes no sense whatsoever, logically speaking, to live as though only this matters and ignore the rest of the rope. It makes far better sense to live here as though that is what matters ultimately. And which is why even the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, um, 17, he says, um, for our light and momentary troubles 
are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And so his picture is we've got to, there is an element where I do think following Jesus can lead to life and life in abundance here and now. But there is also a reality where this life, there's still the presence of sin on the earth. We're still not united with God in the way that we will be after he comes back. Uh, there, And so uh, to them, I'd say, you know, it's like you're living for 50 years uh, you're living as though tonight's the only night, but there's 50 years past tonight, and you've just spent your entire life savings blowing it on this one night. <laughs> you know, it's just helping people process some of this stuff. What if eternity really matters? What if following Jesus actually not only leads to satisfaction and joy with God here in this life? What if I don't need sex to be meaningfully fulfilled? Or a husband, even though those are real human desires, and they're good human desires, there's nothing wrong about them, but I don't need them to be fulfilled. I can be fulfilled in my walk with God and serving the mission of Jesus. And we may disagree on that, but that's fine. Uh, it takes actually um, growing your relationship with, with God to, to believe that. It's really easy for me to say that. I don't believe it for 16 hours of a day. I might believe it for a couple of hours when I'm studying scripture or talking to someone else about it. And you're like, yeah, yeah, this is true. And then you let your heart wander into wanting all these other things rather than seeking first God's kingdom. But the promise is one day our hearts will no longer wander and we will be made to be like him and we will be united with him. And I don't know, we, we need to talk about that m more. Um, maybe because we're afraid that we sold pie in the sky when we die during the evangelical movement for so long. Uh, just believe in Jesus and then you'll go to heaven. Now we're reacting back and actually saying, no, Christianity is for here in this life as well, following Jesus. But we've, we've got to hold both of those things in reality. There is a future world when Jesus comes back to lift the curse on this creation and to exile all evil. And it's amazing. And God's going to wipe away the tears from our eyes. And there's going to be no more suffering, sickness, death, pain, crying anymore. That's something we should rejoice at the thought of and live in light of and hope towards knowing that there are going to be things in this life that desires that just aren't going to be fulfilled and maybe dreams and things that we will have to sacrifice in following Jesus. And and that's okay if you understand the worth of Jesus and, and of what it is that he promises. But yeah, I don't know. Does anyone else wrestle with that? I wrestle with that. I don't, I don't think I've got an easier answer than that, but is that helpful at all? I don't know. I don't think you'll say anything that'll satisfy them other than I believe that what I'm doing is of, he's worthy. I know what Jesus did for me. And I think that following him, he's worthy of my adoration and my devotion. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I think um, if you dig down far enough, this is probably the cause of most people's barriers. And I'm not saying that because that's part of my own story, but I think people have disappointments with God and they're usually around unanswered prayer and around sickness, pain, suffering, death, experiences that they didn't want to happen or didn't feel were part of life that have just happened that way. And so um, pastorally, 
the biggest thing you can do as a Christian with someone who's actually in that situation is not to try and come in with a series of answers as to why God allows suffering, but it's just to sit with them, to be there, to be Emmanuel, to be God with them in in how you love and support and are just present in any way that you need to be. That's going to be the greatest expression of God in that moment. Um, but over time, like what you're saying, people start to get angry and they start to have questions and this becomes a barrier and there do need to be some responses. Uh, and so there's, I, I've done some talks online. I've got some stuff that I've written on this that I can give you. It's more in depth, but, but let me m maybe give you a couple of things that might be helpful. Um, I think it's helpful for us to get some perspective. Uh, if we're asking God to intervene in a particular situation to stop something happening to us, isn't that selfish if we're only wanting that for our particular situation, not for everyone else? And if we're not just asking him to intervene to stop our particular suffering, but we're asking him to do that for the whole world, to stop all suffering, then what are we really asking for? We're asking him to get rid of or to deal with all evil, for the judgment to come, for the end of this age to come and the start of the new age. Uh, I, I think one of the things that happens when people go through suffering is your world closes in and you lose a bit of perspective about the nature of the way that things are. And so the Christian story speaks about the fact that this world is not as God intended it, that it's under a curse, that suffering is a result of human sinfulness, at least human suffering is. And so if that's the case, then uh, it's not so much fault lies with God. It's the story that we're in. The fact that they recognize that it's wrong is actually a window into the truth of Christianity. If atheism were true, then nothing's wrong. This is the way that things have always been. Suffering has been part of the world's big story from day dot. Everything moves forward through survival of the fittest. Nature is red in tooth and claw. But human beings have this real aversion to evil, real aversion to suffering, as though it feels wrong. Um, so uh, there's so many stories I could share from my own, own life. But when things happen, I just have this recoil that this is not the way that things ought to be. But where does that belief come from? Because like I said, it's not an atheistic belief. It's actually a specifically Christian one. It's the fall made good in God's image, made for relationship with God, a particular paradise space set out where death was not meant to be part of the human story, but all of a sudden there's a shattering of that design and now we are where we are and we are fallen. Something has gone dreadfully wrong. And the Christian story is particularly what, what's there to address this. I'd ask them questions like, um, how has it helped getting rid of God? So is it better to suffer with Jesus or suffer without Jesus? Um, as soon as you get rid of God in your system, the suffering doesn't go away, but the hope does. Because there is no God to wipe away the tears. There is no future world where suffering will be undone. There is no ultimate justice for the things that have been done to you. None of that is real. It's just happened and now you're on your own in a cold, dark, distant universe. And so it's profoundly unhelpful to run away from God in the face of suffering. But if you run towards him, you get a whole lot of things. Um, you get a Bible that's really honest about it. The Bible is incredibly honest about suffering. It's, it's I mean, read stories in Job or comments in Ecclesiastes, Experiences of the prophets, the number of God's people, leaders who just wish that they were dead, suicidal thoughts. Um, even the Apostle Paul, even speaking about despairing of life itself, you know, like there are these key guys that go through intense suffering and struggle and they cry out in the Psalms and ask God, where are you? Because 
it doesn't seem like you're involved here. And so the Bible, the story of Scripture, actually gives you incredible permission to bring your entire gamut of human emotion and bring it to God and allow Him to speak into that situation. Um, this Christian story also confronts our smallness. You know, in the book of Job, uh, Job comes to think that God has acted unjustly by the end of the story. He's reasoning through, I'm innocent, God's in control, but yet I'm suffering. And you only suffer when you sin, but I haven't sinned. So God's being unjust. He's not working in the system. Uh, and so there begins to be this questioning of God around the surface, but questioning of God. And when God turns up, God doesn't explain to Job why he let him suffer. You don't get a window into the story at the beginning like we do. He just gives him an exam. Where were you when the foundations of the earth were laid? Tell me if you know. Where were you when I stretched out the heavens, dressed like a man, and I will question you? He gets bowled up by God with a series that helps Job realize how small he really is, his mind compared to the infinite mind of God, and that he couldn't play God for a day. He just wouldn't be able to understand those kind of decisions that are wrapped up in there. And I think the big question of the Bible on suffering really comes down to, what's God doing in suffering? Um, Jesus' ministry was a confrontation of it. In every way, Jesus never said suffering is just a natural part of the world. He treats it like an enemy. When Lazarus dies, John chapter 11, there's these two times in that story where the Greek language isn't translated by English authors. It says that Jesus became greatly distressed, but it's his pissed off. He's furious. He's angered. The, the image in the Greek language is of a, a bull uh, snorting its nostrils, like when a matador is you know, annoying the bull. Jesus is furious at death. And he demands, take me to him. And he raises him from the dead. It's a window into the unnatural nature, the enemy that death is to human beings. Suffering is Jesus walks around healing those who are oppressed with suffering or freeing them from demonic grasp because these aren't parts of God's ordered world, nor will they be parts of God's future world. And so I think Jesus actually gives us a charter, unlike any other worldview, to confront and address suffering and seek to alleviate it, the ministry of Jesus. And this has been one of the greatest legacies of Christians has been social concern globally for everyone everywhere and our desire however poorly we did it in sometimes is just to love and to build hospitals and to educate and to provide food and water rather than just to leave people to their own devices uh, i think similarly the christian story it tells us of a god who suffers with us and this is profound right there that God doesn't remain distant in heaven's joys, but he actually comes near to experience all of the agonies of earth. And he suffered for us. Like if you've got a question of whether or not you can trust God, even though he doesn't give you all the answers why he may have allowed this instance of suffering to happen, we know it's part because the world is broken. We know it's consequences of sin, not necessarily because that person sinned, but just because of the presence of sin in the world. We know the reasons why suffering happens in general, but he never tells us why particularly he's allowing you to suffer but that he would suffer for you, that he would die that death for you. Can you really question whether he loves you? You may not know why he lets this situation happen, but the cross is just this profound and loud divine statement of his love for you, of his desire to have you in relationship with him. And if God can use the suffering of Jesus to bring about the salvation of the world, isn't he the same God that can take anything that happens to us and bring it about in some way for good? Which is that incredible promise of Romans 8, 28. For those who love God and are called according to his purpose, he works together all things for good. 
And so I think on Christianity, you have an explanation for suffering. On Christianity, you have hope for the eclipse of suffering. On Christianity, you have a charter to confront suffering. On Christianity, you have some reasons why God would allow suffering. On Christianity, you have a God who suffers for you and with you. And he's a God who can bring purpose out of your suffering by using it to shape you and become more like him. I would just much rather suffer with Jesus than without. And I, I, I think there are some ways, like I said before, that our intuitions in the face of suffering actually point towards Christianity being true, that we feel like it's wrong. But more than anything, I don't think Christianity either proves or disproves God. I just think I'd much rather suffer with Jesus than without. And I think the love of God is displayed profoundly in his suffering. Um, so they're not easy things to have a, a in-depth conversation with, but I mean, I, I'd take people to the cross and just say, could, could things be more complex than the way that you've reasoned so far? Could suffering still happen and God love you? Is it that his purpose in this life isn't just to make us physically happy, but actually to make us holy, to use any situation necessary to be able to break us, to become more and more like his son? And if that's the case, then I think there's all kinds of reasons why God may allow suffering. Yeah. It's a good one. Yeah. We might do one or two more and then I think we'll finish up, hey? Any other kind of questions on stuff you're engaging and how, Yeah. How would you approach the increase of atheists? Yeah. Yeah. Talk about hell. Yeah, so the question was, sorry, I'll repeat it. How do you, how do you start to deal with someone who's just completely apathetic to, to religion? And, and I think you're only apathetic to something if you don't understand it, um, uh, particularly when it comes to Christianity. If you understand what it is that God's talking about, he's trying to rescue you from walking off a cliff of sin and stupidity. Uh, some of these things, you can't dress up the gospel. Um, Christians believe in the lostness of people outside of Jesus, that because all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory, of God, that the wages of sin is death, that there is an eternal death, the eternal destruction, eternal punishment, all language that the New Testament uses that's coming uh, for anyone who doesn't believe in Jesus. And I just think sometimes we need to talk about that. Uh, I know judgment isn't popular, but at the same time, everyone wants God's judgment because they want evil and come to an end. They just don't want to accept that at the heart of it, we're part of the problem. And so I, with someone who's apathetic, I say, well, what if you're wrong? And, and what if what Jesus said is true, that he loves you profoundly, but that he's trying to rescue you from your choices, from the judgment of a good God who's going to bring evil to an end and you're contributing to that evil? Uh, what if you're wrong? What if this is true? Isn't that worth looking into? Um, and, and, you know... It's crude language, but it's sort of like the carrot and the stick stuff. Sometimes it actually requires a bit of the fear of God to wake people up to even consider it. My sister and uh, my sister-in-law and her husband, um, they came to Christ through reading a really bad book about a vision of hell. Um, it's like I would never recommend the book, but it just got them thinking. What if there is judgment? 
after in the afterlife. He had a bit of a little bit of Catholic upbringing. She'd been Christianized. She'd heard about Jesus a bit. But they just started to think, what if there's more to life than just this? What if there is life after death or a hereafter? And, you know, what do we believe about it? And they were uncertain. And so they, they read this thing and they got a little bit worried about it. And then they came to an Easter service. I preached the gospel, told them of the love of God revealed in Jesus, his death for our sin, his resurrection for our justification, the opportunity of repentance and faith and life in God. And, and they committed and they gave their lives to Jesus and they're amazing followers. And what was it that woke them out of being 21, 22 and just chasing after them, all those other things? And it was just that question. Um, could there be a just judgment? Uh, and if there was, if God was to judge me on whether or not I'm a perfect image bearer, or whether I look like Jesus, or whether I'm fallen short, then I, I know what that verdict is. So I think that's one element uh, that can be there, and I, I do that. I wouldn't. I don't do it publicly as much, mainly because I think as soon as you talk about judgment, it's too easy for people to evoke the caricature in their mind. When you've got a conversation where people can actually convey what they think and their reactions, and you can have enough kind of EQ to understand, you know, where they're at with things, I, I think it's it's really kind of part of our story. Um, in fact. It's a huge part of the gospel. If you read through the book of Acts, there's going to be a judgment. And God made Jesus this judge. He appointed him this judge and proved that to be true by this resurrection from the dead. Repent and trust in Jesus. I think the other kind of thing is certainly um, how would Jesus make a difference in your life? So I understand you're content, you're chasing after all of these things, but I just think Jesus would make an incredible difference in your life. That How is the gospel good news to this person stuff I was talking about before? That takes a bit more diagnosis and thinking on an individual level. But um, yeah, I'd say those two things. Yeah. And again, maybe seeing how much it makes a difference in your own life. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so the question is just on exclusivity. Why can't people who believe whatever they believe just eventually climb the God mountain and, and, and get to the end? God's so full of love and grace. Why does he just forgive everyone and let everyone be part of the new creation? And I think it's a fascinating question. I think in many respects... Um, for some reason, exclusivity becomes a negative thing when we start talking about religion, but it's a positive thing in so many other areas of life. Um, no one, when I stand up at my wedding and commit to love one woman for the rest of my life, no one sits and thinks, oh, I hate exclusivity. It's the worst thing in the world. Marriage is so exclusive because it's only, you know, two people. And uh, I, I just think we treat exclusivity actually as something that can foster intimacy in that situation and guard that relationship. Um, if there's any teachers in the room, uh, relativism isn't true when it comes to a particular mathematical equation. You know, like hands, they hand the student hands in a test, you know, say, oh, all answers are true. Uh, all answers are equally valid and they all end up with an A. Uh, it's just not how life functions. Uh, what about describing ultimate realities, scientific hypotheses? Um, there's no scientific um, journal in the world that just says every hypothesis is equally true and they're all as good descriptions of reality. They're all offering explanations and then either seeking to prove or disprove them based upon empirical data. <laughs> and they're trying to work to the one that makes the most sense. And so in so much of life, exclusivity is actually a good thing. We're looking for the truth about life or a kind of relationship that can foster intimacy. But for some reason, when we start talking about religion, exclusivity becomes a terrible ill. But the reality is everyone is exclusive. 
So um, Buddhists are exclusive. Atheists are exclusive. Hindus are exclusive. Even uh, one of my friends growing up um, was Baha'i, uh, and they're meant to include everyone, but they don't include the people that exclude them. So the inclusivists still exclude the exclusivists, which is almost everyone else in humanity. And so uh, by nature, truth is exclusive, and we're thrown back on the rocks of exclusivism. And I don't think that's a, a bad thing. I think the question is, how do we know what's ultimately true? And if... Uh, I, I think, what about God's love and grace? Surely he just accepts everyone. I think God invites everyone. Uh, Christianity may be incredibly exclusive in that the, the, the door is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and few find it. Jesus is the door. Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. It's incredibly narrow how to get in, but there's no more inclusive invitation than Christianity because Christianity doesn't say you have to learn a particular language before you can even read about God or learn about God. And Christianity doesn't say you have to perform a certain number of moral goodness or be intellectually capable or morally capable or relationally awesome or... Uh, it just says you have to respond when God reveals himself to you. Uh, it's so inclusive in that. I mean, Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. <laughs> we read in 1 John 2. The Jesus' sacrifice could cover 50 billion people if it needed to. Whosoever believes, whosoever believes, whosoever believes, whosoever believes. And so I, I don't know of a more inclusive invitation than the cross of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what you've done or who you are or creed or background or culture. Anyone can come and find forgiveness of sin and spiritual rebirth and eternal life at the foot of the cross. And so I, I, I think what we need to recognize here is, though, that the cure has to match the condition. So if the cure is that we are in if the sorry condition is that we're infected with evil with both committing to it and committing it and damaged by it then the idea of why doesn't god just accept everyone uh, it's a view of the afterlife that says that what heaven is or is actually separate to god um, if god is holiness um, if god is justice goodness embodied uh, and you have evil as part of who you are were you to come into his presence you would melt away in fact some views of hell particularly in the eastern traditions aren't hell being separated from the presence of god it's hell is standing in the presence of god but in an unredeemed state because god is the consuming fire and fire purifies gold and precious metals but it burns up wheat hay straw into chaff it has differing uh, reactions, uh, the different substances have different reactions to the same thing. And if that's who God is, you need to be transformed to become pure, to actually be beautified, enjoy his presence. And so I think that given what Jesus did on the cross, it's the only possible cure for the actual condition that Christianity describes, that we have sin-sick souls and that we need to be not only forgiven objectively for the things that we've done, but changed, transformed, born again, made to be like him so that we can enter into the holy presence of God. And uh, if that's the case, then no other religion is capable of doing that. They all offer a different path to a different kind of salvation. And I think whoever responds positively to the revelation that God's given to them of this message, of this gospel, no one's going to be turned away who puts their faith and trust in God, in the gospel, in faith. But I don't think that's what people are doing. And so when people ask me, what's going to happen to a Buddhist person who dies without hearing about Jesus? My honest answer is, I don't know. 
And that's the answer of John Stott, one of the kind of evangelical stalwarts. And it's a sense of agnosticism in that um, God knows something about that person's life and condition and how they respond or would or wouldn't respond to Jesus and all of these things that, that the Bible just never remarks. But what it does say positively is the only way you can know you'll have eternal life is by putting a faith in the atoning work of Jesus. Is it possible that Jesus' death on the cross can be applied to people who put their faith in God but don't know about Jesus? I tend to think it's possible, mainly because that's exactly what happened in the Old Testament. Um, Abraham never knew the name of Jesus, but yet was justified by responding in faith to the revelation that God had given him. David never heard the name of Jesus, but responded poverty to the revelation that God had given them. It was because of the death of Jesus that was retroactively applied that they could be forgiven. No one can be saved without Jesus, but they didn't necessarily have to know the name of Jesus at that point to be saved. And so I think there's a complexity around here, but the entire emphasis of the New Testament is this. The only way to know that anyone's saved is if they've trusted in Jesus and responded to the gospel. And the missionary movement of God is that we need to take this message to every corner of the globe and preach the gospel so that people can hear about Jesus and be saved. And God has other means that he could use. Angels, dreams, visions, uh, Holy Spirit using nature and conscience to draw people to their understanding that God exists and that they desperately need his forgiveness because they're guilty. And I don't know how God may choose to use those things and reveal himself to a baby in a womb or to a disabled person without them hearing and responding positively to a gospel story. But all of the emphasis in terms of us as carriers of the message is if you hear, it's on you to respond. And if you know, it's on you to take that message as well with you to be carriers that message so that others can hear. And so I think it's a complex topic and hopefully that sheds some light on it. I don't know if it did. Yeah. That I get? Yeah. I would say the most enduring one is suffering. Um, if you go across every other, every culture, uh, it's the one that every culture has. The sexuality, gender stuff is massive in Australia in questions of the West. No one in Asia is asking those questions. Uh, like we're up in Asia a lot. It's a little bit in Singapore, it's a very small bit in Hong Kong, but predominantly speaking, they're incredibly conservative, broader cultures, and it's just not a conversation that they're even having in the Middle East. Um, in Cairo, I've got a, an Egyptian friend. He laughs at the kind of energy that's spent in the West on these sorts of questions because they just come from a very different cultural frame. Like, I can't believe that's even a question for you guys. Uh, and it's just cultural experience that frames a lot of things. So that some questions are deeply about a cultural moment, but some questions are deeply enduring. And I think the two big ones are suffering, and if God's real, why doesn't he make himself more obvious to me? Um, since I've spoken a little bit to the suffering one, let me maybe do the more obvious one, if I can. Um, and this is one I get tons, particularly from people that are much more stronger in their skepticism or atheism. If God wanted me to believe, why has he made it so difficult? Why are there all these little evidences like the historical arguments that you use but I could poke holes in that if I wanted to and why is it all these little tidbits of information and rather than just show up in my bedroom and rip open the roof and just say hi I'm God and I exist you know like why doesn't he do something like that and I I think there are a bunch of reasons why God may make his reality more hidden um, and I think mostly they have to do with relationship. Uh, see, the goal of the God of the Bible isn't to get people to believe in him, to believe that he exists. It's to get people 
to respond to him in faith, in trust, in love. And you can imagine an analogy where I rocked up at Anchor Church this morning. Imagine I wasn't married and I walk up to the first single girl that I saw and I just started professing my undying love for her. I've been following you on Facebook for years and I've seen all your photos and I've read everything that you've ever written and I just think you're amazing and I love everything about you. What do you think her reaction would be? Like, yeah, if you, if you come on too strong, that's not how relationally human beings are wired. That's not actually how relationships form. In fact, um, look at friendships, particularly look, whoops, look at romances. Um, and the way they form is, is more often um, shared space and signals of interest that have to be reciprocated and then deepened. And I think if it's true that God just doesn't want us to believe in him in the same way that even the demons believe and shudder, but he actually wants us to have a relationship with him, to come to trust him as a heavenly father, then I think the kind of revelation that he gives to us is uniquely suited to each person to show those signals of interest that a person can either lean into, explore, or or can just as easily reject. Uh, I think if God gave us more revelation and we reject it, we actually come under a greater sense of condemnation. We're accountable for what we know and how we act upon that. Uh, And so there's some fascinating uh, kind of stories in the Bible which seem to suggest that, uh, like uh, God sending Moses to speak to Pharaoh. Fascinating situation because sometimes it talks about uh, God hardening Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh hardening Pharaoh's heart and even in one situation Satan hardening Pharaoh's heart. Um, And and so you're looking at this situation and you think, what's what's going on here? And uh, I think uh, that God doesn't harden Pharaoh's heart in an active way, meaning he sends Moses and Moses says, uh, set God's people free so that they can go and worship and then God leans in and touches Pharaoh's heart and it becomes a heart of stone like in the Narnia things. He's like, no, I will not. Uh, I think what this means is um, God actually knew how Pharaoh would respond. And by him sending Moses to do this, he's not actively causing Moses' heart to do that so that he doesn't have the option to respond differently. But he knows what his response to do. So by sending Moses, by giving that revelation, the command of God to send him out, he's actually bringing upon the situation whereby Pharaoh Pharaoh's hard, actively Pharaoh's doing it, but at the same time, God in one way is causing it because he's bringing about the revelation, the situation that, that happens here. And so I think it's a fruitful way to think about that I think God gives the kind of revelation to each person that they need signals of interest at different points in time so that they can either look, explore, seek out the truth and find him when we seek him with our whole heart. I think that's the kind of God that we believe. But I don't actually buy into the premise of the question either that God hasn't made himself obvious. <laughs> um, I love the statements like the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands or Romans one twenty, where the apostle Paul says uh, for since the creation of the world God's invisible qualities his divine power and might have been clearly seen being evidenced by what has been made so that men are without excuse or Romans 2 where it says and even those who haven't got by virtue the law um, by from God have got it written onto their heart so even pagans who haven't got the moral code given to the Hebrews have still got God's conscience written into the very fabric of their existence. All of these things are ways in which God speaks. He reveals himself in nature and in the human person. We spoke before about some of those intuitions in humanity that are GPSs to point us to God. And how much more could God make himself obvious than becoming human and performing the kind of miracles he did and living the kind of life that he did? So I, I, I think God has made himself incredibly obvious, but I don't think he beats down our door. I think he woos in that way. Um, because that's the kind of relationship that he's seeking with people. Uh, 
even Jesus, uh, when he said the the kind of worshippers the Father seeks uh, are those who worship in spirit and in truth, where it's not just empty rituals, but it is a relational aspect of connectedness to God and right beliefs about him. And I think if God showed up in all of his glory, most of us would just get squashed, <laughs> um, me included. Yeah. Cool. Well, we might leave it there. Hey, it's been really fun. I'll stick around if you want to ask more questions. Feel free to do that. But um, otherwise, I hope it's been a little bit helpful. Otherwise, uh, the notes at the end there, the best thing I could do is just give you a bunch of people that I really admire and respect. There's podcasts there. There's websites. There's books that are really helpful. Little descriptions of what most of them are so you know what you're jumping into. Um, and yeah, go forth and multiply.